And here we are, February the 26th, 2017, lecture discussion number 272 on the Book of Romans. Okay, that we're, people ask me, where are you? Well, we're at Romans 5 and Romans 8 and 9, 10, and 11. But, uh, if you want to know, that is where the text is. Before we return to collecting, I've got to find the right pen here, as many childbirth birth pang and nakedness garment covering references that we can reasonably digest. And hopefully you've begun to do that. Uh, you want to solve nakedness, we'll address it here again today. Or you want to so, uh, solve childbirth as a symbol, then the way you do it is find where it's first mentioned in Scripture, of course, and then find everywhere it is mentioned in Scripture and begin to assimilate and accumulate all of those and take them as a unit. But before we go back to doing that, we have a little bit of a welcome diversion. Well, um, maybe not welcome. That's probably a bit optimistic on my part. And to be accurate, it's not really a diversion either because it fits the text of Genesis 3-2, which is a free will and true existence discourse, and that is where we are today. And I know true existence is a redundancy. I did it on purpose. Don't mail me that. There are a lot of... Uh, Apparently, the Internet has spawned an industry of grammatical correction, which in spell check. I am not a good typist. Sometimes I have sent things out without bothering to notice that nothing is spelled correctly, which makes me look what? Yes, like an idiot. But I hear about it immediately. It's okay, though. Existence has to be true in order for it to be existent. So I did the redundancy intentionally, and you'll get uh, the reason why here pretty soon. Anyway, let's start with a letter from Joe from Seattle. I have a couple of letters. I think you might find them interesting. Uh, here is Joe from Seattle, and he writes to us, Dear Pastor Dave, see what's happening here now? <laughs> Okay, it's a little insidious, isn't it? Yeah. He does have in parentheses, or office reader. A note to express my gratitude for your ministry. My family and I love your weekly sermons. This is especially from my 21-year-old daughter, Lindsay, who notes that he, the pastor, yeah, is as silly as dad. As a side note, I would suspect that he the pastor, in parentheses, is indeed much sillier. But that would be like two inmates at the local home debating over who is the real Napoleon Bonaparte. I wanted to share a revelation, a stray thought, that I have not been able to find anywhere else regarding the Trinity and Adam and Eve as it came to mind while listening to one of your latest sermons. Like you, I think out of the box, no offense to you or me for that matter, and some of these thoughts get me into hot water. Below is the link to such an example if you have the time or inclination to look into the Holmes mirror. Friends tell me, okay, just don't repeat this, uh, at least not in public. We consider it quite an important revelation. Lindsay thinks it's from God. In any case, God bless your enlightening and unusual ministry to our home. If I had five cents for every time Cliffside has been called an unusual ministry, we would... Well, my goodness, we'd all be driving Mercedes because I would. I used to tell people I uh, 
I buy lottery tickets, and my plan was, if I won, to disperse the winnings amongst the people that had attended at least one time in the previous calendar year. I actually had people worried that I might win, (laughs) and they would come. That's hilarious. The math is bad. Here's another one. This is this is from seven months ago, but I'm not sure I sent it along to you. You'll like it. Oh, I, I guess that's coming from Dave, isn't it? Dear Supper, or is it Super Dave? It is not Super, if he, anyone was questioning that. Apparently, it's Pastor Dave now. <laughs> uh, let me get my glasses off. Just in case you have not yet worked out how to change the cartridges in the most holy uh, whiteboard pens from Japan. And he knew I wasn't able to do it. i tell you what happened. Uh, this is Richard from Japan that sent this. I took it apart a little bit more, what's the word I want, aggressively than it probably was designed. So by taking it apart, I pulled it into pieces that weren't designed to be pulled into pieces. That's because of my, what do we call it, uh, uh, super strength. Yes, that's what it is. <laughs> So he sends these instructions. Hold the pin. Twist the top counterclockwise until it comes off. I did that. I I also twisted the bottom because I assumed this was the top. Never mind. Pull out spent cartridge and push on new cartridge. Replace lid, then turn clockwise till on. I'm sure you've worked it out already, though if the boss tried it all by himself, he may still be at it now. <laughs> I real I feel really embarrassed every time I hear those pins mentioned, in spite of which I am glad I sent them because the boss likes them so much. And I do. I love my pins. Now I have all kinds he sent, as you know, last week, uh, uh, more refills. So I have thousands of, okay, 10 or 15 refills. I hope you, you of Pastor C will let me know when you start running low on ink or nibs or need any new pins. The, uh, many thanks for the Genesis Plus stuff you kindly sent plotting my way through Genesis again from the start, naturally being a bit of a weirdo since I discovered Cliffsa. So, Okay, that was just for fun. Now this will go into, we'll enter a segment I used to call Things I Learned from Television. If you've been here for a while, this is something I used to do a lot. I'm not certain what to call it anymore, as learning from television uh, is an infrequent circumstance now. It borders on the freakish. But I have no better title, so I'm going with things I learned from television again. A while back, you may remember we covered ever so slightly the subjects of zombies and artificial consciousness. How many of you were here for that? Don't raise your hands. Further back from that was an introduction to mental properties and physical properties of the brain. Again, how many of you were here for that? Don't raise your hands. I asked in that lecture if your brain was surgically divided and placed into another human body, where would you be? Remember that? Another way to frame that, does the mind have dependence on the physical location of your brain matter? And if so, which brain hemisphere you can pick, right or left, is necessary? So let me repeat the thought experiment. This is Bernard Williams' famous thought experiment. 
If I were able to surgically divide your brain and put one half or leave one half with your current body and put the other half in a body that somehow was able to function without a brain, where would you be? Which body would you be in? And the question becomes, is does your mind, is it dependent upon your brain material? You know if I cut your hand off and reattach it to somebody else's handless body, your brain or your mind would not travel. You, your personhood, would not be in the other body. But again, back to the Bernard Williams thought experiment. If your brain was surgically divided and placed into another human body, where would you be? This is essentially raising questions as to the personal identity, your personal identity, my personal identity, so as to personal identity and brain hemispheres. And I I am regurgitating all of this again, not a redundancy. I have regurgitated it before. Notice how I defend myself. And all of that because Lori and I began watching mediocre science fiction on television, which we will do. And that mediocre science fiction was attempting to present the complexity of consciousness. And rule number one for the entertainment media, uh, when you're watching entertainment media, you should always have the lowest possible expectations of Hollywood. Just be certain it's going to be stupid. You won't be disappointed. Rule two, two, never consider, and it's related to rule one, anything that you have watched from Hollywood to be insightful or complicated. And you'll be fine. It will not be comprehensive. Always know that there is a comprehensive level that they are not interested in attaining. Intentionally. Purposely they want it to be done. Ask why. There's not going to, it's not going to be beyond one inch of depth. Hollywood has very, very, very little uh, capacity for spiritual or philosophical or scientific pursuits. That's Chronister's Law of Capacity applying here. If Hollywood had such a capacity, they would never have become Hollywood. So Hollywood is confined by definition of being Hollywood to producing trivialities. Again, Chronister's Law of Capacity. So... With all those disclaimers presented, uh, what I watched was a fantasy adventure that aspired to approach this very complex subject, this most of complex subjects, and that is these details. And I'll put them on the board for you so you see them. Look at my pen working beautifully. Somehow I managed to fix my destructive uh, first attempt. I am so happy with my pen. I love my pen. Knowing, have a definition of knowing that is actually accurate. Perception. Uh, This is George Berkeley, of course. My pen is so good, my handwriting is better. Have you noticed that? Reality. Oops. The end came off. I think it's supposed to. Simulation, or if you will, artificiality. Consciousness. 
existence. Will. Life. Death. And what is called, because there are two of them, right? And what is called the mind-body problem. So those, uh, that's the subject that Hollywood was attempting to address. And they, of course, again, expect less from Hollywood and expect less of the less that you expected. There's just no way they're going to get this done. And they don't want to either. I think that is a result of not being able, but it's also a result of knowing that their audience wouldn't be interested in it if it were presented properly. Now, this most current premise that Laurie and I sat down to watch is is one that traces uh, a returns to Gene Roddenberry. Do you know who he was? Okay, Gene Roddenberry uh, was the author of the Star Trek uh, system or Star Trek uh, program. And Roddenberry had a revealed agenda. What I mean by that, he was not trying to hide what he thought. And his agenda was to discredit the biblical truth of the spirit and the soul every time he could. Roddenberry was a materialist, a physicalist. He was a monist, and he was extraordinarily hostile to the Bible and all Christian precepts, but specifically the one that said soul and spirit. Anyway, here's the basic structure of this, uh, of this more current uh, enterprise. How about that? See how what I did there? That deserves a reward. Somebody called me the other day to tell me that food is not a reward. Well, they're wrong about that. They said, yeah, food is not, you are not a dog, they told me, and food is not a reward. Well, apparently I share that with the dogs, as all of us agree that food is a reward. I, I intend to have the lasagna today at the buffet just because I want to reward myself. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm losing focus. Basic structure of this current uh, proposition. By means of a book, that's what it said, by means of a book of some mysterious alien origin. I find it fascinating that evolutionary monists are convinced that there are aliens, uh, which opens great problems for them. But in any way, there's this book, and it has a mysterious alien origin, perhaps. And this book uh, transfers or contains uh, the... Basics, the secrets of life. And because this scientist has read this book, he is now able to replicate a human brain. He is, and thus he is able to create an artificial intelligence. Okay? Simulate artificiality. Then uh, the concept progresses to the ability to make duplicates or counterparts. Indistinguishable, indistinguishable from the human original. Are you with me so far? Never say yes. It just encourages me. And I'll continue with these types of subjects. Eventually, the mad scientist succeeds in capturing the entire contents of a human brain or a human mind. And that, of course, is the memory, the personality, the instinctive functions, the subconscious, all the information He's able to capture it and convert it to a digital format. And once he's done that, he installs it into a computer system. 
And then he then transports it or downloads or transmits it, all this brain information, into a previously prepared synthetic brain that is a mechanical device with human attributes. And he, and, a, and he takes all of that and he puts it together into an, a robot. Now, never mind the impossibility of this. Allow the hypothesis for the sake of the arguments. Suspend all reason, in other words. They actually, this particular show, actually went to the severed head in a glass enclosure. Uh, and, and the severed head in the glass enclosure was able to remotely control a body that looked like the body of the severed head guy. And that's relevatory as to the monistic perspective of the writers. You, you can immediately tell when they've gone to the severed head in a glass enclosure that these are physicalists. These are monists. They do not believe that there is a soul or a spirit. Remember Roddenberry? I had somebody on a planet, right, of thousands of miles away, and he would transport them. First, he would convert them into some kind of digital system, uh, particleize them and bring them across vast distances, reassemble them, and they all had their what? Their faculties. And if there was, so he reduced them to physical materialism, physical particles. What did he do with the soul? He never addressed that. Why not? Because he didn't, he didn't think there is a soul. So when I have the severed head in a glass cage, hook the wires in a body that looks like the guy's original body or girl's original body, off here remotely transmitting so the head is controlling the body uh, with the new head, all of that is physicalism. Again, suspend your intelligence when you watch these things. Okay, what are we left with? Obviously, this is Bernard Williams' exact proposal, isn't it? Adjusted somewhat for the audience's enjoyment. It's modernized, if you will. So I have two entities now. One is human. He, even though he took the brain's information and transferred it, somehow the brain maintained its information. So he copied the information. So I have two entities. One is human and still perfectly functional. And the other is an artificial mechanical device with a synthetic brain in it. And each have identical brain information. That's the premise. So again, that's Bernard Williams. Which one is you? Both entities are certain that they are the original entity. They are convinced that they are the are, they are not the copy. Their exterior features from from visual identification purposes are identical. The mannerisms, the demeanor, the posture, the voice, the emotions indistinguishable from a distance. Which one is the machine and which one is the original organic physical body? And to repeat, both of these persons, if you will, that would be a misnomer, but both of them are convinced they're the true being. And this is the question, again, of which one is you? How can you know you are you? Can you know you are you? Eventually, the concept was expanded in the show that we watched. Instead of one copy, there were 25 copies, and that's what delighted me about it, because I am always anxious to take a premise and convert it to the absurd. As you know, logically, if something is 
is accurate at its base, it will be it will show accuracy at its absurdities, its outside parameters. I didn't want 25 copies. What did I want? I wanted 25,000 copies. Let's keep copying. Let's have a hundred thousands of you. I wanted a hundred thousands of me. So why not a thousand, a hundred thousand counterfeits of you, all convinced now, if we continue with the, with the premise, all of these copies are convinced that they are you. So you are in a room with a thousand yous. They all look like you. Everybody looks like you in the room. Which one is you? How can you figure out if you are you in this room full of yous? With me with that? That's a shame. (laughs) But only one of them is you. How can you be sure that you are not a copy? How can you know your own reality? What guarantees your self-awareness? That is the question here. That is what the show was attempting to bring to the table. Let me twist it a little bit. Could God erase each of us? Yes or no? Could God erase each of us and replace us with productions of us? Yes or no? This is a time interval question. Could God effectively delete the entire world, erase it, delete it, and then replicate it? How much time would you give him to do that? Let's give him an hour. Could God erase the entire creation and replace it with a copy? Not the original. He eliminates the original and replaces it with a copy. Remember when I would ask this question, God, is it you're going to heaven and you ask for your beloved dog. And God says to you, well, I erased your dog, but I'll give you a copy. You won't know it's a copy, but it is. How do you feel about it? Let's say he did it with your children. See how you can begin to go with this question quite a ways. If he does that, did he do it with you? Could God effectively delete the entire world for one year? You pick one day, you you decide, replace everything and everything as they were. Could the infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God of creation accomplish this? Answer, yes or no, just not allowed ever here. This is also framed, you'll find it uh, presented as the frozen in place thought experiment. The absolute stopping of the universe scenario. That occurs as an afterthought here in Joshua 10. What does it take to freeze the sun in place? Especially, as you know, the earth is orbiting the sun. And everything with the earth is orbiting the sun. I have gravitational phenomena now. If I stop the sun in place, and some positions are that the darkness was kept and not light because of the heat element of the war. But see Joshua 10. The absolute, I won't, I won't go further into that because I'll never stop, will I? But I have the absolute freezing of the universe. And what must freeze with it for that to occur? Time. God has to stop time. That's what makes Joshua 10 so valuable. 
stopping all motion, nothing moves, everything is frozen. You've seen these scenarios all the time. Somebody is always able to move through the frozen world. It's the only person with motion. But imagine that everything is frozen, nothing moves, and then everything is restarted as opposed to be replaced. Can God, did God, would God do that? And if you are replaced with something that thinks they are you, are they you? (laughs) I'm glad to see a couple of people laughing. That's great. No, they are not you. Thinking that you are you is not enough to be you. You have to be you. And therein lies the flaw, if you will. This is what we're talking about. Knowing will existence. There's the flaw in this line of thinking. You see, it's impossible. Let me say it this way. Don't raise your hands. But I'm assuming that a couple or three of you who watch this show, if you watch this show and did not recognize, allowed yourself to accept the possibility of it, then they have trapped you in demonism. And as Christians, we should, as Bill the Cow pointed out, we're supposed to be the wise. I've been saying this a lot. Stop throwing your underwear at Tom Jones. Christians should not ever worship a human being or even be emotionally attached to a human being or even have high expectations for human beings. Christians are supposed to have wisdom. We're supposed to be the wise, detached wise from this world. We are not. We fall for every stupid scam that you can imagine. We are suckers. drives me nuts. And Bill was pointing out that The goal of this church from the beginning was to produce as much reason as we possibly could before before we were out of business. Let me say this again. It is impossible to make something, someone, identical to you. It's impossible. Sameness is impossible. And everybody tells me I'm wrong when I say that. Oh, yeah, I saw it on TV. It must be true. I'm telling you, it is impossible to make something exactly you. I may overstate that a bit, just a teensy bit. I'm satisfied with the statement. To make my point, ask the obvious time-based question. Notice how time keeps coming up into these discussions. Did I have time on the... I should have time. Gosh, I love my pen. How long does it take for two entities to be different? How much time will pass? How much time expires before two entities... Let me go ahead and concede the premise. What I mean, just go ahead and assume two human beings or two entities, one mechanical, one organic, just assume that both are perfectly created correspondent 
co-equality. I have two of them and they are equal. How much time expires before they are disparate? Does that make sense? I submit the answer is 300,000 kilometers per second, which is the speed of light. I know, somebody will write me and say it's 299,732. In any event, it's fast. Neurological function is at the speed of light. Immediate neurological differences. As soon as I activate both the entities, they are immediately different. Because the minds will not think simultaneously. And if one of them is a physical machine, it does not have a mind. How fast do you think something different from the person sitting next to you? Minds will never not, never think simultaneously, nor will minds think equivalently. Instant difference. It's the minds that make the brains different. Imagine if we all had physical exteriors alike. alike. I have a black lab. I have seen lots of black labs. They all, black labs love to chase balls. And they will all chase the ball. And you will make the mistake because they all look like black labs if they're all the same. They are not the same. Their minds are absolutely different. Their experiences are different. Everything about them is different, except you may assume the exteriors are the same. But the exteriors aren't even the same. You just can't recognize the differences. But let's just focus on the interior. Instant difference. The minds that make the brains different. If you had physical exterior alikeness, and all of us had, go ahead again, concede, all of us looked like me. There would be... There would be Mass running into traffic, I know, I got it. But let's just say we all looked exactly the same. We would nonetheless be completely distinct. It is not the physical properties that cause diversity, but the mental properties. The spirit, the soul, the mind. God designed us to be singular. He says so. You are absolutely different. Awesomely made. Everyone is different. There is no sameness. Our individual thoughts, to give you an example, cannot be predicted. Try it. Who's married? You cannot predict individual thoughts. You can't even predict your own individual thoughts. Try to predict your own individual thoughts. That unpredictability of thoughts ensures that there is distinction, distinctiveness. I have a little note here that I can't read. If I cannot predict an individual thought, then I cannot reproduce it. I must have predictability in order to have reproduction of thought. While the man is supposedly uploading your brain, what is your brain doing? What is your mind doing? Changing the brain. How fast is the mind changing the brain? Immediately. How fast is he trying to upload it? Not immediately. He can't keep up with the changes. There are so many thoughts. 
How many thoughts have you had right now that are that you can you can reveal? Don't. You've had lots of thoughts. How many of them? We are spirits. God never calls us a body. Once again, God refers to us as living souls. Our we are not the body. We are the mind, the soul, the spirit. We are eternal spirits. We are never called bodies. We are living souls, and we are spirits that have a body. That's how it works. And God definitively states this over and over and over again in the Bible. Okay, everything I just said requires something in order for the solution to be constituted. The component that brings resolution to the replication question is your will. Free will. Without free will, without sovereign thought, there is no self-awareness. Let me repeat that. Without sovereign free will thought, there is no self-knowing. You can't know yourself unless you have sovereign free will. Knowing requires free will. And I've said in the past, existence carries with it free will. They're inseverable. I do not have existence unless I have free will. Without free will, there is no existing. And physical devices cannot produce non-physical properties. So if I have a physical device, what is a non-physical property? Here's one. Here's one. Here's one. Here's one. Here's one. Here's one. Physical devices can't produce non-physical information or properties. It's the biogenesis. Life only comes from life. I can, there has never been in the history of science life from anything but life. You cannot get life from anything but life. The source of life is only Life must come from the source of life or a source of life. The same thing is true with your will, your perception, your knowing, your existence, your consciousness. Those are all spiritual characteristics. They're thoughts, uh, non-physical realities. And they only emerge from a non-physical source, a spiritual source. Nothing can make a living soul. A living soul is unmakeable. I always ask the question, where did your living soul come from? What's it made out of? I'm telling you now, it's unmakeable. What in the world, okay, what in the universe, okay, what in all of creation is unmakeable? Remember the book, Who Made God? God is unmakeable. A living soul must come from, must descendant, must be descendant from a spirit source, a machine. And isn't it, isn't God so lucky that he says, I am a spirit? Which tells you that he is the source of spirits, doesn't it? A machine might be able to present an illusion of thought, but a physical only construct cannot think, does not think. Thinking is a free will event. That is unpredictable. By definition of free will, it must be unpredictable. Does that make sense? Nod your heads as if it does. 
Free will is evidence of eternal existence, which makes thinking, knowing a spiritual quality. Abraham asked Christ at Genesis 15, 15, 8. He says, how can I know I will be saved? What he says is, how will I know that I'm inheriting salvation? Galatians explains that's what he means. He didn't ask, how can I feel I'm saved? He asked, how can I know? Being saved is a knowing procedure. Knowing is an incredible capability. I'm asking you, how can you know that you are you? Abraham took it to the next obvious level. How can I know that you will save me? Therefore, you will know that you are you because you will possess will. You will possess free will. And that means that you possessing free will is an indication that you exist and that you are you. And so, can I test to see if I have free will? Is there a test for free will in the Bible? Did God start out with a test for free will after he created man? That would be the logical thing to do, wouldn't it? It would be reasoned because he would have to be able to prove to man that man exists and is not an automaton, is not a mechanical device, that is a spiritual device. I can test my dogs for free will. They pass. Anybody that has them, you can test your one-year-old for free will. Try it. Okay, you don't have to try it. You can watch it manifest. It isn't a coincidence, Genesis 2.16, that he creates Adam. And he creates Eve. And then he establishes a test that is a free will of free will design. The two trees are proof of free will. He gives them proof that they have existence. Why did God do this? Everyone always asks that. He is he's proving existence. It's an existence test. Because if you are merely a machine without free will, you have no existence. So he is proving you exist. And he's proving that you know that you are you. Those that have the pretense of being you, as the show tried to do, will not pass the free will test. They're merely able to represent the programming of their construction. You do not represent the programming of your constructor or your construction. You can change yourself into a free will device if you were not uh, a free will device previously. But you can't be anything but a free will device if you have free will. So all you do when you exercise it is demonstrate that you were never anything but a free will device. And if you have it, I hate to call you a device, entity. If you have it, then you have existence. Where does your existence come from? What is the source of existence? Existence cannot be temporal. 
And I hope you've related all of this to Genesis 3, 2. That's the questions that Satan asks Eve. Isn't it interesting, I hope it is to you, that secular atheistic Hollywood is fixated on convincing their audiences, that would be you and me that consume their products, of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is a uh, contradiction. If intelligence is defined as knowing and will and consciousness and mind perception, then there cannot be an artificial intelligence. But Hollywood is fixated on it. They, they're constantly bringing this to the forefront. It's more aptly artificial consciousness. Why are they doing this to you, to me? What is their hope? Even more appropriately, uh, (coughs) monistic life. That's what they call, evolution says life is monistic, life is physical only. That's an incongruity. There can't be life if it's monistic. The Hollywood proposals are always a reiteration of Satan's questions to Eve, reformatted, but it's the same Genesis 3, 2 questions. And so when you read that, ask yourself, what was Eve up against here? She walked into this. How complex was Satan's questions to her? What were the consequences to Eve if Satan were able to prove to her or convince her that she had no free will? To repeat the question of Satan in a more modern, identifiable form. Satan asks the woman, can you choose to eat the poison? Yes or no? If she can't choose to eat the poison, what's the point of the test? The test is then a what? Can you choose to eat the poison? And Satan says to her, God is lying. You, Eve, will not surely die. Why not? Why won't she surely die? Your eyes will be open, he says to her. You will know, you will have knowing. What's implied? You don't have knowing. If you don't have knowing, then what's implied? Your eyes will be opened. You will know good from evil. How so? And you will know that God has lied. Lied about what? The two trees? If he did lie about the the two trees, why did he lie about the two trees? And how did he lie about the two trees? Why would God lie? What's his purpose? What's his end to lying? What does he gain by lying to someone? Why would God ever lie to anyone? What's the point? How many of you in your life, don't raise your hands, has assumed that God has lied to you? We do it all. God lied to me. He promised me a better life. No, he didn't. This leads to why does God insist on resurrecting our physical bodies? See how we got there? I hope so. Because that's where we're headed. What changes? 
when he resurrects your physical body. 1 Corinthians 15:51 Behold I tell you a mystery. It's a mystery. I shouldn't I should say it better, right? I should jump up and down and fall except I'll break both ankles now if I do that. Uh, I'll try. Behold Behold, behold, behold. I show you a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. What are the chances you have any idea what he's going to say next? Very small. That is us. I'll tell you a mystery, Paul says. We shall all be changed. What's the question? Why? How? The corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's body resurrection. In other words, the body must put on incorruption. And the mortal body must be immortal. Is the mind already immortal? The soul, the spirit's already immortal, but the body is not. The body is temporal. We're in a temporal body, and we've got to change it to an immortal body. And that's what he says the change will be. So the change will be for all who are in Christ, the temporal body will change to an eternal body. The body that was subject to death will no longer be subject to corruptible death or corruption. It will not ever die. It is this new body now. It's a new body in the sense that it's new to us. But how different is it other than it can't die? Well, you still look like you. Well, I look like me. Why would I want to look like me, you ask? I'm not sure I do. How much will I figure into looking? Do I have a vote? But it is the body that we had, but it is changed to immortality. So that's good, right? I have a non-death body now. All in favor of that, don't raise your hands. God is resolute about this. Our bodies are going to be resurrected. Sorry to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not really. Fake sorry, right? Our bodies are going to be resurrected and they're going to be changed from mortal to immortal, no longer subject to physical death, but nonetheless our bodies. Why does he do it this way? Why not destroy the original body and recreate a completely unfamiliar one? Did you see what I did there? Let me repeat it. Why not destroy the original body and recreate, remake, make brand new out of different particles, if you will? Erase your body. Completely erase it and make one that is brand new, different. That you've never occupied before. Your mind has never been in this body. Why doesn't he do it that way? He doesn't, which means what? It's wrong. I have many, many people say to me, I can't wait for God to destroy this body and get rid of it and give me one that's brand new and has not even the slightest and it's not going to happen. Why not? Has he thought it through? So notice how I said it. Let me say it again. Why not destroy the original body and recreate a completely unfamiliar one and, and, and unite you to that? Instead of reuniting you, re- unite you to one that you are completely unfamiliar with. You'll have to read the manual. I submit that God purposely continues our body for the reasons of this. 
Which is the tip? No. Ah. Right here. That's what he's doing. He purposely continues our knowing of ourselves. By that I mean we know ourselves, we know our minds, our thoughts, our thinking system, how we think as well as what we think and why. We recognize us mentally and we will likewise recognize our physical body. It's essential to completeness. Recognition is essential. It's obviously integral. God maintains continuity. He wants continuity. There is a continuity of the soul and a continuity of the body. That's his plan. There is a temporary, an intermediate state. But when you are put back into your body, you're going to what? You're going to know it's your body. How will you know? Well, if I, if I had the ability, and it would be cool, we'd double the attendance, but if I could pull your spirit out of your body and take you wherever and bring you back and put you back into your body, and if I did it to everybody, huh, everybody, get it? But if I did it to everybody, thanks for laughing, that's hard. This stuff is hard. You write it down, it doesn't look funny, but if it comes out good, then you're really happy about it. It's just part of the process. But if I pulled you all out and we all went on some kind of out-of-body, disembodied experiment, and I, we flew around and, um, and we came back and I mixed you back into, your, into the wrong bodies, how many would know that you're in the wrong body? You would all know. Some of you would resist change from that. But you can't. God will put you back into your body. And guess what? You will know it is your body. And you will know it is your mind. Knowing is very important to him that we know. When we awake from a deep sleep state, and I don't have very many of those anymore, but if we do, we have this disorientation. But we have no interruption of self-awareness. When I wake up from a deep sleep, I know it's me. And I know it's my body. Why? How does that work? How do we know that we are us? I have no doubt that I am me. How did God accomplish this for all living souls? Why can't this be replicated in a machine? Again, God thought this through, duh. He figured it out before he created physical slash spiritual life. The angels deal with this or dealt with this. They had to. Every sentient being asks the same question. Consider Adam and Eve. No other humans, just the two of them. What are they going to ask? What's the first thing that Adam asked when he had consciousness? What do you think was the first question? Put yourself in the position. You're created by God. You're now activated. Your spirit and your body is there. You are functioning. What's the first thought? What do you think he did? Who am I? Why am I here? Where did I come from? Am I real? Reality. Try to imagine their thoughts, especially Adam. 
Would God have been prepared for those questions? Please, please. Would he have put a system in place where Eve and Adam and you and me can figure out reality for ourselves? Are you real? That's your question. What does Satan say to Eve? Are you real? You see? That's what Eve faced at Genesis 3.2. Questions about her very existence, her will, her capabilities, her knowing. Eve was confronted with the most cunning person of all, Satan himself, and she was deceived. She was knocked down. Not just legs wobbled, not just Bambi on ice. She was knocked down. Adam was not. Satan didn't shake him. Okay, shift gears here as we approach the finish line for today. I might be able to do it. Nakedness and childbirth, two very mysterious symbols. I said last Sunday, childbirth is a pattern upon which the tribulation is based. Tribulation is placed on this childbirth pattern. Every pregnant woman knows the timeline of her pregnancy, especially when it's in the last couple of hours. They all know. Baby is coming. She knows when the baby is imminent. The Bible says this is a symbol of the church at the end of the age. So make the obvious transfer to, to the church. Nakedness, however, in my opinion, far more difficult to solve. Adam was naked. He's the first Adam. Jesus Christ naked. He's the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.45. Both nakedness events for each Adam have a death context. Adam is dead and naked. Christ is dying, going to be dead and naked. Both of them, last Adam, first Adam, dead and naked. How did Adam die? What killed Adam? Poison killed Adam. Taking the poison killed him. The fruit. Christ's death. Is there any poison around him? Yes, there is. The cup at Gethsemane. Did the poison kill him? Please answer that correctly. Did Christ die from the poison? No. So I have, I have differences. Adam is, a, is dead and afraid and naked and hiding. And Christ, however, is not afraid. But he also is hiding. And he's also dead. Adam is under the curse of death. And it said he is under the curse of death, Genesis 3.17, for his own sake. Christ dies for whose sake? Yeah, for our sake. God himself separates his spirit from his body and it's necessary for salvation. And the resurrection of his body is necessary for salvation. Ask why? What does it prove? One element of nakedness then is death. Death is separation, dividing the physical from the spiritual. So when we see nakedness, we're seeing the division of the the separation of the spiritual from the physical. Hebrews 4.12, Christ is the one that does this. He's the one that divides the soul spirit from the bone and the marrow and the skeletal system. He's the one that is so sharp that he can separate out the body from the spirit. That's one of his attributes. Jesus Christ is the one who divides. And as the divider, he is the one who can reunite. And the Bible repeats and repeats and repeats that there's two parts to life, the spiritual and the physical. And to save us, 
We have to have nakedness. We have to have the spirit soul divided from the body. That's nakedness. Why is that? Next week, we will endeavor to persevere.